Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I am Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist, and now a health coach based in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. I started this podcast in 2020 to help you live a better life. Today, I've got the dynamic duo of a couple of female farmers who are crushing it in the social media and podcast world. It's Natalie Kovarik and Tara Vanderdusen who are here to break down everything from grass-fed to grain-fed animals, what ranching life is like for today's modern woman, and what we can all do to preserve animal-based products for your family. Their links are in the show notes, and you'll get to meet them right after this. Hi, listeners. For those of you new to the Lisa Fisher Said podcast, this this will be unique to you. For my longtime listeners, you know something, and that is I only talk about products or services that I personally use. Those are people who place ads on my podcast. I am so proud to connect today's podcast sponsor with the actually with the same theme of the people who I'm interviewing. It's Ralston Family Farms. Ralston Family Farms, they are Arkansas farmers, ranchers that grow rice here in the state of Arkansas. It's a a non-GMO product. It is uh, regenerative farming. So when I'm talking to my guests, Natalie and Tara, about regenerative farming, I'm like, check, I know about that because I know the Ralstons. And I also know that the product that the Ralstons sell is superior. I know that because I incorporate it into my meat-based diet. I talk about that a lot, that I am mainly animal-based is kind of how we say that because I have uh, eggs too. But I eat rice because their rice has protein in it. Again, non-GMO product farmed with water from the Arkansas River here. And then I do have uh, local fruits in season and some raw dairy. But you will eat this product knowing that it's a family. Ten generations of farmers are packaging it, selling it to you. And I want you to know the faith that this family has, how impressive they are, and how family-oriented they are. I heart them. Go to their website now. Find out more, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. I'm looking at some of the books right now that I've ordered from DogTalkTV.com. It's a site where you can buy books about dogs and the proceeds help the local rescues, especially here in central Arkansas. The author of many of the books and the brainchild behind the website is Pat Becker-Wallace. She's a philanthropist and certified NADOI dog trainer. That's a National Association for Dog Obedience Trainers. She's devoted her life to helping find forever homes for the dogs, but also matching the right breed with the right owner which is paramount in her dedication to animals. She's loved animals all of her life, but helping the dog rescue organizations is her life's goal now. Some of you might recognize her as the host of a national PBS series. is called The World of Dogs Biography. She's now writing these books about dogs, partnering with authors to help educate your family, your friends, your grandchildren about the privilege of dog ownership. One of the books, in fact, on her website is written about the dogs at Heifer Ranch and benefits the ranch, which is west of Little Rock in central Arkansas. Go to dogtalktv.com. I ordered some of the books recently. I'm donating them to my granddaughter's school. I bet you have some creative ways you can help libraries as well. Go to dogtalktv.com now, order the books, and know you're helping the rescues. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. 
Now this is exciting. Not many podcasts have two hot female farmers, but I just I just snagged them. So I've got both Natalie and Tara, and we will have to tell the audience, you know, I introduced you separately, but we will have to tell the audience kind of from whence you came and how you got here. So Tara, start with you. What's going on there in New Mexico and how'd you become a farmer? Yeah, so I'm actually a fifth generation dairy farmer and I married awesome. a fifth generation dairy farmer. So there's just a lot of dairy Wait, farming going did on. Did y'all go to farmers.com? <laughs> we did the, not. The, <laughs> oh, and what was it called? Far- Farmers, farmers only? only. Yes. Oh, I always wanted to find a matchup on that. Dang it. Not for <laughs> me, but for friends. No, we actually met when I was three and he was five. Um, and we were not high school sweethearts, nothing like that. We went away to different colleges and then after college kind of ended up um, coming back and obviously got married, have two girls and ended up on his family farm here in New Mexico. And then my family farm is just down the road. And um, I actually got and my degree in environmental wait, science. You're you're utterly in love. <laughs> we are utterly in love. Sorry. Lots of good dairy puns. I know. I know. Low, low hanging fruit. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I got my degree in environmental science and I've worked as an environmental consultant in the dairy space for the last 10 years. And then um, several years back, I started sharing online and just wanted to open up our farm to people who wanted to learn about where their food comes from and ended up connecting with Natalie. And then, you know, fast forward to where we are now, we have a podcast together called Discover Ag and I'll let her share about herself and then we can kind of go from there. Okay, to Natalie, your, your turn. Yeah, so like Tara, I also grew up in agriculture, not dairy farming, so no no major utter jokes for me, but uh, <laughs> still in the beef sector. I grew up on a cattle ranch in Montana, so you can probably cue the Yellowstone jokes if you have any of those you would like <laughs> oh, to for throw sure. out. <laughs> right. Um, I got my degree in pharmacy, and when I graduated, I really had no intention of coming back to the ranch. I think... Um, kind of common sometimes with small town kids to think that they're, you know, bigger than the small town they grew up in. And I thought that was me for a while. I thought I needed to get out and go somewhere big and do something bigger. And the thing about farming and ranching is it is a little seed that is placed in your heart. And sometimes even though you think you have outran it, um, it stays with you and it kind of calls back to you. So I met my husband who is a Nebraska rancher. That's how I ended up here in Nebraska where I am now. Um, And when we got married, I was not working as a pharmacist. So I decided to start a direct-to-consumer beef business. I decided to sell our beef um, directly to whoever you know wanted to buy it. And in order to do that, I knew I had to connect with them on the internet somehow. And so I used Instagram. And like Tara said, that kind of eventually through you know some different twists and turns led me to her and starting our podcast, Discover Ag. Awesome. So full disclosure, my podcast is sponsored by a 10th generation of uh, regenerative farmers and it's Ralston family farms and they're prolific with their rice that they grow and they use the water from the Arkansas river. And it's an amazing story. And I'm telling you there, there, no one works harder than a family of farmers or ranchers or anybody who's out there in the elements doing what they do to, to believe in that the food that they provide will change your life. And I grew up some in Southeast Arkansas, which has a lot of cotton farming, but not, we were not raised, I was not raised where uh, food were, or cattle, or someone may have had a cow on their property, right? And they got milk. But to see this as, this isn't just a hobby, this is, and again, it's your belief system, but it's how you want to change lives. So Tara, when you talk about dairy farming, there's a lot of crap that's available in the stores. So let's talk about how regenerative farming for dairy farmers, it it can change your health. 
Yeah. So I feel like one of the really cool things about regenerative ag that Natalie and I love to talk about is that it's not just like a check yes and no box. You know, it's not necessarily like a label. It's not a marketing label that you're going to see at the grocery store always. It's really a spectrum where farmers are adapting all sorts of different things. So for us on our dairy farm, we're actually a conventional farm. Um, So our milk just goes to the regular, you know, food supply system. It actually ends up going to cheese. But we get to do all sorts of different practices. You know, we've got, you know, minimal till going on. We compost all of our cow manure and we can get into all the details of this. But I, that's what I love about regenerative is it means something different in every area too. So in, here in Eastern New Mexico, where water is really our main issue, for us, it means focusing a lot on how do we reduce water use? How do we use crops that need less water? How, how do we maximize the water that we're getting? Um, whereas, you know, a farmer there in Arkansas, that may not be what their resource right. concerns are. And so regenerative is so amazing in that way that you can really adapt it to whatever your farm is, where your location is and what's available to you. Like, what are you able to do right here, right now, today? And how are you going to be continually making improvements into the future? So Natalie, define then regenerative farming. Hmm. That's a loaded question, Lisa. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, but like Tara said, it comes down a lot to the practices that the farmers are doing, right? So it's really a mentality. Also, I think it's kind of a mindset of, you know, giving back to the land more than you're taking from it. Um, You know, there's even people who prefer to use the word regenerative in place of sustainable because sustainable means, right, we're kind of keeping it the same. You're sustaining it, whereas regeneration means you are actually improving it. Um, So a lot of it comes down to, like Tara said, different practices we can do to better, whether it's our land, our animals. Um, Common practices you could hear people refer to would be like no tilling um, because a lot of regeneration is centered around the soil. So it's going to be like, what can we do to best, you know, get that really good, healthy soil? No tilling, um, planting cover crops, doing things with water conservation. Um, We do a lot on our land our ranch with our local NRCS. So we're planning, you know, butterfly habitats. We're doing things for wildlife. So it really depends on like what part of ranching and farming you're in that the practices are going to be. But really, it's that mentality of doing really, really good things that improve the land instead of just taking from the land. Well, I know the Ralstons, that's because I've been a part of their press conferences and other things. Yeah, I've had a relationship with them a long time. And I know the no tilling is something they mention. But I've never understood, why aren't, why aren't we tilling? Like, is tilling a bad thing? <laughs> That's a, such a good question. Um, so one of the things about, you know, Natalie mentioned that regenerative ag is really that soil health. And uh, one of the things about regenerative ag is co- planting um, cover crops. And so you want basically to, like, keep as much biomass like plants on the soil as long as possible and by tilling you can be like breaking up that um, organic matter those plants and so not keeping it on there so what we do is we try to be as minimal till as possible sometimes there's instances where we need to till and that's what makes sense Um, but if you can be minimal till you know you're just taking that equipment across that land less times and less disturbance and for us you know our cover crops are actually what we call double cropping where we're able to get a winter crop and a summer crop off. But that way, year round, there are plants in the ground. There's something in the soil holding that soil down, you know, just keeping that like activity. You know, you really think about the soil as being like alive and you want it to have all of these different, you know, microorganisms and things going on under the surface. 
And one of the cool things, obviously, about cow manure is that it actually can increase organic matter. And organic matter is like everything to soil. The more organic matter you have, the healthier your soil is. And cows play such an important part in that organic matter. Well, we'll talk about our friends, the cows, in just a minute. But (laughs) so tilling then interrupts the ecosystem and we're trying to preserve it. Is that was that the best way to explain that? Yeah, I feel like that does. That's a a, a simplified version, definitely, of kind of what's going on. And and when you break up that soil, you can also be like um, releasing some of the water, like the water could be drying up. You're just you're yeah, you're disturbing what's going on there. You can also release carbon too, which I don't know if you've heard carbon in the news at all, or people's focus on yeah, carbon. <laughs> maybe just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but that's another thing too is, um, you know, that carbon can be stored in soil. Um, it's a carbon sink, actually. Our land is that means it can like take it in. It's one of the few things. That's why agriculture we always advocate for it as being part of this, you know, part of the solution, part of the answer instead of the problem is because we're an industry that can actually take down that carbon that is floating around in the air. And so uh, tilling can kind of disturb um, and and kind of mess with that process as well. Do you all feel threatened? This is These are not political questions. I don't want anyone to think, but it, tur- it gets to politics. Bill Gates bought up a whole bunch of Arkansas farmland. Does Is that encroaching on you in either state? I mean, is it something that we really are dealing with? This is uh, a really good question. It's something we actually have covered multiple times now on our podcast because it is such a complicated uh, topic. And it's beyond, you know, Bill Gates. Um, You know, for some reason, Bill Gates is always the one that ends up in the news. Um, Jeff Bezos actually owns more farmland in the United States than Bill Gates. And then, you know, we also see certain countries in the news about buying farmland. But one, um, yes, but what's funny (laughs) is that China is not even in the top five countries of owning the most farmland. It's actually the Netherlands and Canada, which when you really look at the ag food system, not that surprising. There is a lot of influence from the Netherlands and from Canada and, you know, just lots going on in that space. Um, so it's it's interesting that it's always, you know, the China and Bill Gates people that make the news right. um, when really there's a lot of other players in this kind of global market, this global ag system. What about, Natalie, then in Europe, though, didn't, I'm trying to think, was it the Netherlands that they're, they're kind of quashing um, farming and, and it, it may be against the law and I may be overstating that, but that's how that's been communicated to me. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's another great topic that we actually covered on our podcast. Um, so for anyone listening, I guess maybe we could break down our podcast and then it would make sense of why yes. we keep saying we're covering all these things. Great. But what we do is actually take the top three kind of trending topics, most important topics that are in the news that week that make headlines that are, you know, people that we think are going to be curious about. And then we break them down from like our, you know, millennial farming perspective. And so, yeah, we've covered a lot of these, you know, like you said, these newsworthy things that keep popping up. And definitely the Netherlands is kind of the first that comes to mind. Um, that is under, I think, some strict government, um, I guess, policy yeah. changes that would really affect farming for them. Um, but not far behind them is places like New Zealand. I think uh, Ireland really made headlines recently with culling a bunch of cattle that we talked about, too. Um, so there's definitely a push. Tara and I like to describe it that we are becoming a society that is very carbon tunnel focused and also very methane. Methane gets brought into the conversation a lot with cattle. And so we're really, really focused on, you know, cutting down those emissions, um, which that's great. Like we could, that would have an improvement, um, certainly, right, if we're, we're decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. But we're almost losing sight of 
some of the effects of, you know, what that would be doing to our farming and food, um, the actual implications of cutting down the greenhouse gas emissions. Is it going to be as big as we think it is? I mean, these are very complicated ripple effects we could be having when we start trying to mess with our food system. And so uh, we're really, in Tarnai's opinion, kind of getting out of balance when it comes to putting these restrictions on farmers and attempt to just kind of decrease the emissions. Uh, it's the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, it's a source of, well, obviously I have an opinion. It's a source of life and so many other things. And the reason it surprises me that in Ireland, because, you know, some of the best cheese and dairy you get mm-hmm. is in Ireland. So what, I, we're not going to travel there because I want a scone with some clotted cream and I'm not going there if they're going to act pissy about it. So why yeah. would they? So I guess they have a political system in place that thinks farting cows are the threat. Yeah. And, you know, it makes sense that um, they'd be going after some of these places because they have the highest emissions. Right. But if you think about it intuitively, the most productive places are going to have emissions. Right. And that's one thing that we talk about and we're concerned about is if we reduce production in places that are very efficient, very good, have high quality we have to offset those somewhere else, right? Like someone has to pick up the slack. We're not eating less meat. We're not eating less dairy and we're not going to like, that's, those are not trends that are predicted in society by any means. And we're, you know, what will that be for other places who have to pick up the slack of, you know, let's say Ireland. Great. Um, they cut down on their emissions. Ireland's personal emissions are now decreased in the eyes of, you know, the global, the global, um, I guess, comparison. Someone else is picking it up. If they don't have as high of standards, they don't have as high efficiency or production. It's like we could actually be having worse, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in the long run. Like if somewhere else has to pick it up that is not as good, we could see numbers increase even more. And so there's a lot of concern about picking some of these high productive places and putting kind of a target on their back. Um, It also, I think, could affect uh, research, right? Some of these leading places, if they are, you know, again, leading in these areas, if they're going to be cutting back and down, what does that mean for our improvements? What does that mean for the future? What does that mean for things like we can progress on and work on if they're not going to be doing it anymore? So we've all seen, you know, as as my friend says, he read it on TikTok. You know, he used to say I read it in the paper. Now you go, oh, I saw it on TikTok. But I read it on TikTok. Um, those of us who have the philosophy that cows are good, God made the cows, and that dairy and beef are obviously the staple of my diet. I have a meat-based diet. That's what I eat. And some rice, local fruits in season. Pretty boring, right? But with that, we've seen the videos of um, or I, I really have read this in actual words too, that by, by eliminating the meats that people think are so evil, that all the animals that are killed, all the insects and the parts, however, the ecosystem that is damaged when more plants are produced and in order to produce the plants that's making Kim Kardashian's fake meat burger, which we know she's not eating, I mean, whatever, um, that it really does more harm than good. Tara, can you kind of expound on that? Yeah, I can start and I'll let Natalie jump in too because I think she has some great examples there in Nebraska. But yes, I think there is this misconception that if you're eating plants, you're eating like you know, out of somebody's garden when in reality, like most of our plants are mechanical harvested. You know, there's, it's, there's real 
farming, like it's industrial farming as well to harvest an entire field of lettuce or an entire field of watermelons or whatever it is. You know, you're disrupting that soil, just like we talked about with the no-till um, yeah. or the tilling. Uh, you're disrupting that field. You're you're having to make it, you know, perfectly level. You're having to get all of the right, you know, fertilizer applications to grow whatever fruit or vegetable you want to talk about. And yeah, I think, you know, the, the plant-based burger that... Um, is being pushed so hard, you know, that's based out of soy, soy production, you know, oh. take a look at that. I mean, and that's not to say like, so it, it just, when there's the argument made, Natalie and I really believe in food choice. Like if people want to make the choices they want right. to make, that's great. But don't tell us like that soy based burger is better for the environment or healthier for us, because those are two things that are not true. Natalie, your self-control is impressive because I know you <laughs> want to say something. No, Tara touched on some really great points um, when it comes to people's, I think, perceptions. And I, I honestly, I think the way the media has kind of portrayed plants versus animal proteins and kind of started almost skewing, you know, the common mindset we have about how it's better, cleaner, greener, you know, all of these adjectives, we like to call it greenwashing, you know, these marketing totally. terms to, to try and, you know, get people to buy certain things. Um but for better or worse, I do think that there was a movement somehow established around like plant-based eating and how that's more wholesome and better. And um, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, circling back to our conversation about greenhouse gas emissions, there's this, a really great study that shows the statistic if we all went uh, vegetarian or plant-based, we would only decrease the greenhouse gas emissions by two point, I think it's like 6%. So it's less than 3%, which again, great. That was, that's an impact. We're not denying that. But I don't think that is really the impact people think they're having when they're going, you know, meatless Monday or you know, or cutting it from their diets completely. Um, and on the same, you know, flip side of the coin, we would see a calorie increase and a nutrient decrease, right? And I think we're at a place in America, we can all agree that, um, you know, Tara and I like to say we have a very safe, affordable and abundant food system, but maybe we have some choices out there that aren't the healthiest choices out there. You know, I don't think we need more calories in our diet as Americans. I think we need more nutrients. And so we also get really concerned that, you know, when people are pushing this plant-based diet um, or these plant-based narratives, um, that we could be doing some major harm, especially to, you know, pregnant women, growing children, um, oh. a lot of these bodies that need the full nutrients. Have you seen even with the nursing homes now, they're mm -hmm. pushing more toward plant-based, which uh, as a health coach, I can tell you that uh, ladies, after you hit 40, you need to increase mm -hmm. your protein intake. And protein is typically from a meat product. I know you can't get some alternatives, but you can, you would not be able to get the needs for your body. And the last thing your grandmother needs to do is to break her hip in that nursing home because then she has six weeks, six months or a year to live after that. So you prevent the broken hip, as we know, with weightlifting, sunlight um, and protein. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it just to me, it's, it's just very, very simple. Um, in New York, when the mayor, well, for one thing, the mayor is going to throw out uh, wood fired ovens and the guy from Barstool Sports um, I think that's the name of that account. He, he's a real funny guy. He, Dave. all he does is, yes, he, all he does is go from city to city, go into pizza restaurants. And so he threw all the pizzas over the mayor's, uh, gate because <laughs> of course he's at a gated property there to say, you're not doing this to us. So that's one thing. But then when they did start pushing meatless Mondays, I, I'm not kidding apart. My heart hurt because the trickle down effect now, I, I will say, now we're not talking politics. I know we're not, but there are red states and blue states, right? I mean, I think that should be taught in civics now. There are red states and blue states. I am in a red state 
And red state to me means freedom. I don't care what the rest of you think. It means freedom and autonomy. So I don't think that's going to be a threat to us in Arkansas. But what about Nebraska, I would say, is a red state, a rural state like Nebraska. New New Mexico would be, what are you? Are you a red state or blue state? Typically more blue, but we just depends on the year, but probably leaning more blue. Okay. So, but rural communities we know are yes. typically, and I say that in a political way only of if you want government making choices for you or you want freedom. And that's what we're talking about. I just want the freedom to choose whether or not I take a certain vaccine or I eat a certain food. I, I don't care what y'all do. I really don't. I just want the freedom. So do you feel threatened at all, Tara, with your farm and the or that the schools may cut down meets on Mondays, because as a conventional farmer, that will affect your bottom line. Yeah. So that's a really good. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, You know, for me, looking at some of these states that have reduced, you know, they have the meatless Monday and they have like the vegan Friday. What really concerns me, and I think we've heard this from a lot of registered dietitians as well, is that for a lot of kids, like this is not going to hurt the kids that go home and have a home cooked meal or a big meal every single dinner. This is going to hurt the kids that are um, in under, you know, underserved communities and houses that are struggling already. And you think about the days they picked as well, Monday and Friday. So those kids, I mean, you talk to teachers about this, like we've had a lot of conversation. They are not getting a high protein meal on Monday uh, or on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday and Monday. So their only days to get animal protein are the three days in the middle. That is really a detriment to their, you know, developing brains. I mean, there, there has been so many different groups that have come out whether it be groups of registered dietitians, pediatricians saying the main things that kids need to be eating, like plant-based milks do not compare nutritionally to cow's milks. And so unless you are supplementing your diet in other ways, which we know kids, even kids that may be from more affluent communities, they're picky eaters. They're not always the best eaters. And so if you can get them to drink a glass of milk that is cow's milk, you're getting a lot of nutrients. Or if you're getting them to eat a a few bites of steak, that is a nutrient powerhouse for those kids. And so to deprive them of those nutrients is just absolutely a disservice to those communities. I was going to say, Lisa, Lisa, it's really interesting that you actually went to politics because you would think that food should be something that is not divided, right? Each side right. should stand for food choice. It should be, it, I feel like it should unite us, you know, as a nation. It, um, but it seems to be doing the opposite. I feel like it's gotten really out of control actually. And it, it really, as you said earlier, it breaks your heart when you think about it, because I do feel like, you know, uh, animal proteins and some of the diet choices have turned into a, almost a political thing. Um, and I think that's really, really unfortunate. Um, but it is interesting because I think more and more people are starting to realize how that's been used, maybe marketing or different things. You know, we also covered, you know, Mayor Adams and some of his decisions on the podcast. And we've kind of talked about that a couple different times. And I can remember going to one of the first YouTubes that was put up about, you know, him doing kind of the press release. And I think it was like a hospital setting. Um, and the comments on there were overwhelmingly against, you know, a narrative of, a. Uh, a mayor choosing a diet for a city. I'm sure New York is a blue state. I don't actually really know. Um, (laughs) The city. Wait a minute. I I was just there in Albany doing some TV commercials. And so that's the capital. And, you know, you're bailing up to the bar, talking to people there and it comes out. Politics y'all comes out in all conversations. Mm -hmm. I'm not inviting it. And the people there were saying, we are a um, New York city is a blueberry 
in a red state, and so is Albany. State capitals are often, she said, blue. But these were farmers. So you don't think of New York. You think of New York City and New York State, right? Yeah. Well, there's the Adirondacks. This is the Catskills. Mm -hmm. This is um, Jewish communities. It is um, a lot of different religious communities that rely on the land. And they said, we are all against what they're doing in Manhattan Mm -hmm. and here in our capital. So that really opened my eyes. They said, though, we do come out as blue when we vote on Moss as a group. But they said there are so many people who are here for freedom. Mm -hmm. So it really surprised me. Yeah. But, you know, to that point, the even the people within the, you know, New York, like you said, the blueberry, um, yeah, they were not liking the video. So I think people are starting to recognize that food choice is, um, you know, a unifying thing and, and uh, something most people are standing for. Well, I do think COVID is what started changing the fact that that's the first time in our lives we were told we didn't have a choice. We did. And businesses were told they didn't have a choice. So they closed up shop, which is against your constitutional rights. I mean, we can argue that all day. So that is what it's, it's, we're at the level of the frogs in warm water and it's about to boil and the frog, you know what I'm saying? And if we're, if we're not paying attention and if not just paying attention, I hope people wake up, right? Hope people wake up, but I also hope they start going to their, their Albany, their Little Rock. There is Santa Fe, the capital of New Mexico. Oh, yep. One of my favorite cities. Oh, it's um, a great one. What, what's the capital of Nebraska? I'm sorry. I don't Lincoln. Know. Lincoln. That's right. Um, I remember third grade geography or whatever <laughs> that was. Um, but people need to start speaking up to say, you can have rules for you. You and, As for me and my house, the Bible says, as for me and my house, I, I'm going to have a, a steak for dinner tonight and some eggs. So, no, I, I think you all need to keep speaking up. Have you felt like your voice has been stifled at all? Um, because, you know, now AI is, um, that's who's monitoring our conversations and the posts we make. Do you feel like at all you've, someone's put a thumb on you to tell, tell you to zip it? This is such a good question, too. You're hitting a lot of good points that we've never been I'm asked about I'm kind of good before. at this. I've done this for a long I time. And, and I have a I have a sincere interest in what we're talking about. Yes. Uh, yes. It's very obvious. We've got a lot of passion here going on. Um, and this is something Natalie and I are also very passionate about. But going back kind of actually to your COVID point before I answer your question, I think that COVID was a big turning point. And I heard a quote, I love to share it. It was about like how it was a very pivotal moment and how farmers needed to take that that pivotal moment in our history and really like talk about agriculture. You know, it was the first time with COVID that, you know, massive disruptions in our food supply chain and that people were kind of stopping and wondering where their food came from. And so I do think that there has been a massive shift of people being more curious in where their food is coming from, wanting to connect directly with farmers. And I think farmers have been kind of delivering on that. We've, I feel like there's a lot of farmers sharing on social and trying to get out there. I feel like farmers markets have become a really like thriving Mm -hmm. place for people to go out. And so I love that that feeling of kind of the pendulum swinging in the other direction now of people going the opposite, as Natalie said, like there's a lot more conversation, I feel like, than there were five years ago around where your food is coming from and what you need to know and the questions you should be asking. Um, And that has been, I don't know, really positive to see as a person who's shared online for, you know, 
over seven years now, it is cool to see it coming back around to agriculture and to, you know, cattle being an important piece in our diets. School starts back this month in Arkansas, and there are a lot of families that are going to rely on Jess's Chicken for an easy pickup meal. You can do that because, you know, they've got the drive through Those of you from Arkansas know that the Bubba's family closed their properties on Sunday so you can worship. So, okay, cross that one off your list. But the other six days a week, you can go by and get chicken sandwiches, chicken nuggets. You can take your kids lunch at school once in a while. I don't really think they deserve it often, but... But once in a while, you can give them a treat. I've taken Jess's chicken to my chiropractor's office and they loved it. Different options they have there. Some are dairy-free, some are gluten-free. The sodas are are high fructose corn syrup free. They use real cane sugar and it's the good stuff. You want ice cream for dessert? Well, you know with the Bubba's properties, also at David's Burgers, they offer ice cream as a dessert. And they even have toast and gravy. And for those of you not from the South, go by and check out the chicken fried chicken. Yes, you can get that at Jess's Chicken. It's at I-430, Rodney Parham in Little Rock. Find them online, jesschicken.com. Uh, are you moms, you two? Yes, yeah. we're both moms. Okay, you're both moms. Okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the threat of someone. I mean, my kids are grown now. I have grandchildren, though. And thinking of just the school lunch thing. Oh, I can't cuss on this podcast, but it's a... <laughs> Darren, will you beep this out? It's a shit show. <laughs> there, Darren, beep that out. Darren will beep that out. But there's no other way to describe if you've walk through thank you he's not said yes you are um what the lunches that are available for these kids and the crap that's being served and the fact that they give low-fat milk y'all do you i know was about I, to say you're, you're I, hitting on a really hot topic for me right now <laughs> it it absolutely makes me nutty do you know what an outlier i am when i so i have i have a yogurt a milk dealer here you know i've got her pager number and we meet at the kroger parking lot <laughs> and i've been mower I really do. Um, but sometimes if she doesn't have yogurt available, she does kefir for me and whatever I need. But, you know, if I run out. So I was at the grocery store. Now, it's easier at like a fresh market or Whole Foods. It's more of a specialty store. But at Garden Variety Kroger, 0% fat, 0% fat, 0% fat. I'm digging in the yogurt because uh, I put my local fruits and berries in season, you know, in my yogurt. And I make sure because I'm trying to get a lot of protein. Because, you know, I'm 100 years old, as I told you all before we started. <laughs> uh, but with that, it, do you know how hard it is? to? It's hard for me to find unsweetened tea at the grocery store because it's all sweetened with fake sweetener. So it's zero calories, whatever. It's poison. It's poison, people. But no one's looking for unsweetened tea. It's always the green label, typically. And then high fat yogurt. Do you do you know? I mean, what are we doing? I mean, are they demanding? You're the person to ask, Tara. Are they coming to the conventional farmer saying, I am looking for a cow that's got 1% body or 1% fat in it or 0%? Is that what the people are demanding? Yeah, it's so crazy because actually we're com- we're paid on components. And so components is the butter, like the fat in the milk. So the better the fat, the butter fat, actually the Oh, more I'm making paid. you rich. I'm making you rich then. But then they take it out, which is <laughs> so wild. That's like why are we taking it out? Thing. Um, but it, no, it is crazy. I am a really big advocate of whole fat yogurt. Um, I have a younger daughter who really has to get calories in and I 
like we have decided, I mean, we want good calories, right? Like we don't, I mean, there's plenty of junk food calories out there, but we would like her to be eating really great calories and really great fats. And it is really difficult to find full fat yogurt. And the school system thing is just wild. It's wild to me that, you know, milk gets labeled up there with like Coca-Cola and, you know, milk has a lot (laughs) of, it has naturally occurring fats and sugars. Why are we taking those out for kids? And what's even crazier is if we would leave the fats in, even chocolate milk, which, you know, people have different feelings about chocolate milk, but chocolate milk can be a great alternative. It's delicious. Yeah. And kids that drink (laughs) chocolate milk are less likely to drink soda pop, which. Right. That's a win in my mind. Um, But you don't need as much sugar in something if you have more fat. The more fat you take out, the more you have to replace it with something else, which ends up being sugar. And it is just really wild that that we have to have skimmed milk in schools. Like I, I can't, I don't know sometimes I'm like, what planet are we living in that we think that full fat milk is what's causing kids to have a problem? Well, and Tara and I were just talking about this on the podcast recently because last week we covered, we actually kind of deep dive like uh, sugar subsidies, um, yeah. which is a very right. interesting right. topic. Um, and we were talking about how right now I feel like in society, they're villainizing some of the foods we've eaten for the longest, right? So meats, milks, yogurts, and dairies, and they're blaming all of that on these health problems that are not necessarily um, you know, health problems we maybe experienced a long time ago. And it's like, if we really looked at our food system and what could be causing some of these problems, it is not, you know, going to be those whole nutrient dense foods, um, which puts me on my soapbox that I kept thinking about when you guys were talking personally, mine is food labels. I really think our food labels in America have really gone off rails. I think they started in a really good place, a really good idea to help consumers be able to source you know, the product that they are no longer growing themselves because that's how society has moved to. We've moved to 2% growing for 100% and that's just where we are. So wow. if you're going to be shopping and not making your own food, you're naturally going to be have questions about it. So great solution. Let's label it so that people can better understand what they're buying. Um, but I don't really think that's what labels are about anymore. I don't think they're really invested in helping consumers understand. I think they've really gone too far into marketing, buying, greenwashing. Like it's kind of a disaster when you can pull the, you know, general... Americans and we think that the fortified cereal is healthier for oh. you than, you know, grabbing the steak and just a lot of these labels are Don't misleading. eat cereal. Here, I'll help yeah. you with that. Don't eat cereal. <laughs> and it's not at fault. I mean, I just feel so um empathetic for the, the shoppers because it's like they're not growing the food. They don't know. You know, the labels are telling them one thing, headlines are telling them another. And it's like very overwhelming to step in the grocery store and even try and source something healthy for your family and your kids when you feel so overwhelmed and you see TikTok videos saying this is going to kill you and another TikTok video that this is going, you know, this is causing this disease and stay away from this. It's like we compile the TikTok on our or a reel on our Discover Instagram that basically shows the juxtaposition of someone saying like only eat meat. No, plants are killing you. Don't buy milk. This is doing like it's like what do you even buy anymore? Because Everything is so overwhelming and it, it's fear mongering, like fear mongering has taken over our food system. I get a lot of pushback because um, I am a certified health coach and I'm on been on the intermittent, intermittent fasting lifestyle since 2017. So um, I, we were with an older lady the other day and my husband and I were going to eat our one big meal on Saturday that we eat. Sometimes we, you know, we have one meal a day sometimes and we were leaving and she said, Oh, you're a health coach. Yeah. I've known her for a long time. And she said, so where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to eat a steak. I don't know about him, but I'm going to have a steak. And uh, she goes, but I thought you were a health coach. See to her that 
you couldn't have both. She was like, how can that be healthy? But what about your cholesterol? I mean, I, I, I get that pushback so much. I was just interviewed on a radio station here recently and it was men. And when I tell men, you never have to eat another salad. They want to come home with me. I mean, <laughs> they're like, I don't know who your husband is, but he's lucky. I said, you don't have to eat another salad. Have another piece of steak or some cheese, you know, because then the pushback was on that radio show. What about cholesterol? And I said, mm -hmm. give me an hour and I'll explain to you all the science. But now you, the three of us know it's bought and paid for and that food labels are bought and paid for because food labels, we are fatter than we've ever been. We exercise, we have more gyms, there are more workout facilities on every corner in every city, right? And there are more food labels telling us, well, New York was the one that banned big sodas. See, again, let me make my choice. If I want to have a big soda and a cigarette, let me have it. I'm not going to, but it's my body, my choice. So the food labels and the whole calorie count, that's another thing, I guess, and I'm sure you all would agree with me, stop counting calories. I mean, eat real food and you never, I have no, I, I mean, when I say I don't know what I eat in calories, calorically, I don't. I just know that I have a steak waiting for me downstairs and a cup of yogurt and some cheese. And I, I don't know what that means. Do you all, is anyone asking about calories anymore? Yeah, I think that uh, the whole entire conversation around nutrition and what people like how to lose weight it, it is a wild world out there and I have to agree with you I feel like if you eat whole foods it's definitely less of a concern to be counting calories and that's not to say like you gorge yourself I mean everything within limitation but if you're eating whole foods you're gonna have to eat a lot of whole foods to overeat calories you know when you think about all of the things that are added to all of the different processed foods it's just crazy. And so it, it is. I think it's so much easier to watch your weight or or just be in a healthy weight when you're eating whole foods. I know like for me, I've lost 10 pounds in the last year and my focus has been on eating, making sure I'm yeah. eating more whole foods, more whole foods and 30 grams of protein at every meal and Good. then more protein. And it, that it I mean, that's been my biggest change, like those two things. And, awesome. and it wasn't that I was, you know, overly obese before, but just that made me get back in the range I wanted to be in. You know, the other really interesting thing with where we're at in food and society right now is it is, you know, whether it's social media or headlines or news or what it is, I do feel like we're at a point where it's really hard to unring a bell. And, you know, that oh, yeah. is a big mm -hmm. problem. Like when you even just talked about like animal animal proteins and cholesterol, like right. there's been a lot of study, a lot of people communicating about that, a lot of people talking about that. And yet we cannot get out of people's minds like, but what won't my cholesterol raise? Isn't that bad? Same thing with heart disease. They did a really good job bringing the bell of, you know, red meat and heart disease. Um, and even though, again, more and more information comes out and more and more studies and more and more health professionals talking about how that, you know, isn't true or not a concern, or this is what it actually means when we're like breaking down what the study means. It means a, you know, not five times more, it's 5% of the increase. So it's really only one, you right. know, whatever that, that right. actually means when you look at the scientific study, yes. it's like people just cling to that original statement and then it's like live or die by it. And it's, you know, it's really, really hard to unring those bells from our food system standpoint, um, especially when it comes to like our animal proteins. We, well, we could talk about cholesterol forever because, uh, I mean, that, that they're throwing a flare so that we're running after that when it's, you know, we say in the meat-based community, stop blaming beef for what sugar has done. Mm -hmm. You know, 
cut your sugar out. Then let's look at your lab work. You know, things, as we know, things improve. Um, the other thing that you might know this, Tara, but the science behind why you've lost some weight was your, and you may know this, we have satiety hormones. So we're, Dr. Jason Fung says that he's the father of intermittent fasting. We're hormonally wired to eat and to stop eating. So your hormonal wiring to eat is when you eat low fat, diet foods, packaged foods. And I'm not saying you were doing that, but whatever you did, you've replaced it more with foods that prov provide more satiety. The pr foods that provide satiety, they only provide satiety. Packaged foods don't. And Dr. Ben Bickman says, if you buy it with a barcode in a bag or a box, it, it the science is, it will trust the science, remember? It won't provide satiety. So the satiety hormone, cholecystokinin and peptide YY only fire if you've had fat and protein. What is steak? Fat and protein. What is cheese? Fat and protein. What's milk? Fat and protein. Salmon is fat and protein, but the low, those white flaky fishes that don't have much fat, they're not, they're not going to give much punch. And that's why people say, well, I ate Chinese food and I was hungry two hours later because China has, it, it's more, the majority of that is more carb. Only this much is protein, right? And little is fat. So that's why, because the hormones, that literally is your bell that rings, you know, in your brain that says you're finished. And once you start addressing that, then all of a sudden you push away. And it's this, what you all know is if I told you, um, to eat a bag of potato chips. Well, the Lay's, it says on there, you can't eat just one mm -hmm. because they've spent billions in research and development, mm -hmm. billions to trick you. But you would never eat three fully loaded baked potatoes with butter, cheese, bacon, salt, pepper, and sour cream. You, you would get sick. Why? Because your cholecystokinin and your peptide YY, your peptide YY would fire and you couldn't eat anymore. So you yeah. see, it, it's your hormonal wiring that keeps you slim. Food is it's really interesting when you start diving into like the emotional part of how our brain is wired with it. And then when you start talking about the chemical things, like the way, our, like you said, our body is, you know, chemically um, wired to respond to food. It gets yes, really, really interesting wired, right. mm -hmm, when right. you start breaking down the things that we release, the way we view it. Um, it's just foods. It. It's really interesting when you start thinking about some of your habits, why you have them. I listened to a really interesting podcast that was talking about what you just said. They call it bliss points in food um, yeah. where we have put, you know, each food has its own bliss point where it's right. the perfect amount of sugar, fat, carbs, mm -hmm. all of that so that it is, you know, perfectly designed for us to just consume, consume, consume and, and almost to the point of addiction. And so, yeah, it, it can be oh, fascinating sure. to deep dive into a lot of that stuff. Well, that's the hyper palatability that research and development from Lay's potato chips or General Mills or wherever that are, hey, people, they're also subsidized. Those foods are also subsidized. So they're double dipping and farmers are out here barely making it. I'm running for office, dang it. Okay. <laughs> We're ready to vote for you. We're we let a fire in you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, now here's something I really, I, I need to understand better. Because I think there's a taste difference, but I really prefer my grain-finished beef better than my grass-finished beef, right? But am I going to die because I'm eating grain or 
grain fed cows because we have them here and they're, they're delicious. So tell me the difference. That is a very good question, as Tara said, likes to say. I feel like Tara said that before, after every question you have asked I know, so far. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, I love it. More, more, more. No. Yeah. So here, I'll break down the difference. And I think okay. it will surprise listeners because I do not think it will be as big of a difference as you think it is. Okay. So the way our beef system is built, the easiest way I can explain it is to think of an hourglass. So at one end, you have very big, wide. It is operations like my husband and I's. It's called a cow-calf operation. There's over 700,000 of them in the U.S., and they are all family-owned. And the average herd size is only about 43. So very small, very family-owned, something I think consumers would really love about our beef system, right? That's the big, wide, open top of the hourglass. As we work down into the beef system uh, from the way the cattle um, works is the beef sector is a little bit different than like chicken or pork in that it is not owned by the same person from beginning to end. So pork and chicken are vertically integrated. An easy way to think of that is like Tyson would own the chicken from the egg all the way to the very end. Here we are, Tyson. Arkansas. All right. owned by Tyson. Yep. Right. Beef system. We are not like that. We are, again, we'll have the independent ranches at the beginning. We sell our calf to the next stage, which is called the backgrounder. The backgrounder then sells it to the next stage, which people would often hear is the feedlot. And then the feedlot sells it to the packer. And that is how you're working down into the hourglass. The packer oh. is what you'll hear as the big four. We only have big four packer who dominates over 80% of processing in the US. That is the oligopoly that people like to talk about. Right. It's a big thing. That is right at the center of the hourglass last where nothing can get through. That's our chokehold. Then we come out on the other side and it goes to like restaurants, grocery stores, and then the consumers, right? So it goes back out into the big, nice hourglass. Um, the thing about grass finished and grain finished is all of them start on ranches like my husband and I. So all of them are going to be out at pasture on grass with their mothers, drinking milk all the way up until they're sold to that feedlot stage. Again, sometimes that, that backgrounder stage too. It's usually a weight actually and not an age. Okay. Um, so it'll just vary and it can change hands and go to the background or it can go change hands. You know, there's just some different things that could work depending where you are, the size that enter the, the feedlot, et cetera. They spend only about four to six months at the feedlot stage if you are getting grain finished. So a grass finished will not have any grain in its diet. Um, it means that's what the label means. It's a grass finished. It had grass only for its um, diet for the entire life. I think a lot of people like to take the grass finished label and make it an animal wel- welfare label. And it is not. You know, it does not mean it was treated better because it was given grass versus grain. It is not an animal welfare. It's not a nutrition. All it is is a diet label. It is simply telling you that the animal was fed entirely grass for its lifetime. So the grain finished, they're going to be like the grass. They're going to start out for about two thirds of their life out at pasture. They get sold to that feedlot and they enter the feedlot, which typically the grass finished don't. They're going to be grass finished on a ranch, you know, out at pasture. They can be in a barn. That's also like a common misconception. So another common misconception is that it didn't receive antibiotics or added hormones. It still can. It's it's, grass finished just means it got grass. Okay. Okay. So the grain finished for those four to six extra months, actually less because it takes longer to finish grass finish. But so those four to six months of its life, it will get grain added into its diet. It still is getting grass though, which I think people think that it's just got corn its entire life or it's just eating corn right. on the cobs or something. And that's not right. true. It's, it's okay. grain that has been added to grass. So it's just part of their diet. And there's a study out of Oklahoma State actually that when they looked at the entire lifespan, the amount of grain consumed by a grain finished animal is only about 7%. So it really is minuscule. Um, I think it's something that's gotten maybe a little bit out of control with, you know, people's um, perceptions of what a grain finished cattle means. Um, But really, it's just that they got a little extra corn 
grain in their diets that the grass didn't. It fattens them up. It gives them that marbling. That's why you like the taste better is because that's what the grain does versus the grass. So your cattle is both or one or the other? So our cattle will be at the very top. So we sell it and then we don't know where it goes, oh, that's right. who buys yeah. it, what it, you know, I that's mean, right. ours is going to enter the conventional supply chain. So if I was a grass finished operation, I would typically hold on to it. And most grass finished operations in the U.S. are probably going to be direct to consumer, honestly, like they're yeah. just not a ton. Like we actually import our grass fed that you would see at the grocery store. I don't want to give that as like a hard rule, but most of the grass fed when you're thinking large scale in the U.S. is actually imported. Um, so a lot of grass. Oh. grass finished consumer um, operations are direct to consumer. So for our operation, we, our job is to, you know, raise really healthy calves that are sold off to eventually, um, you know, enter the backgrounding, enter the, the feedlot stage and then get harvested and, and sent off to grocery stores. Okay. Tara, since you can be a little more objective, since you don't have um, a cow in this game, um, <laughs> then why, why am I pushing so much for local beef if they're still maybe getting antibiotics and there might be glyphosate in the soil? Yeah. So I, uh, Natalie is a big advocate of direct to consumer. If you choose okay. to go that route, because it does support like that family. Um, it means a lot to that family. Um, yeah. you know, dairy is just so different. Like Natalie was talking about how beef is so different than poultry and, uh, pork hogs. And then dairy is like this whole other beast that's completely different than the other ones. A lot of times when we talk about animal protein, we lump them all together when in reality, they're very different. So from like a dairy standpoint, you know, if you buy the regular conventional milk at your grocery store, it typically comes from a farm less than 100 miles from you. And it takes less than 48 hours to get from the farm to the grocery store. Oh, so okay. it is a very localized system. Actually, one of the most local products you can get at your grocery store is your regular old conventional milk. All right. That's, I can answer a, your question though, that? Lisa. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Cause I, I, I do love to encourage people to support, you know, local if they can, if that's within their budget and something they, you know, way they want to shop. Um, I think it's a really good thing to do. Like Tara said, I always like to point out how much it means to direct to consumer operation. Cause it's not easy to implement. Um, it's a lot easier to sell your, you know, to the, the, it's a lot easier to follow the conventional supply chain that we have set up than what some of the yeah. producers are doing. Um, it's also really important if you care about supporting U.S. producers. As I said, um, we have a very goofy thing in, I don't know if you've heard of this, but in our food system, uh, when it comes to uh, beef, uh, made in USA label does not technically mean it was animals that were raised here. It, they could have been raised elsewhere and imported. It just means they were harvested here, which is okay, a very confusing. A yeah, okay. no, it's not. And it's been, it comes up every, pretty much with every, um, administration. Thank you. Administration to combat that and change that. But it's part of like NAFTA and there's things with Mexico and Canada that really make uh, it. That's why where NAFTA. we are, where we are with yeah. it. I so that. Yeah. if you really want to know that you are, you know, supporting a U.S. farmer and rancher and you're consuming 100% U.S. Um, beef, then the best option to ensure that is, again, local farmer and rancher. Got it. Um, the other benefit is you could ask them questions. So you could ask them like if you are concerned about GMOs, which is a conversation I you know, very deep conversation. I'm not sure we want to go down that rabbit hole, but if you are a consumer that is concerned about, you know, maybe pesticides or herbicides or GMOs or yeah. some of those things, you would be able to ask the farmer and rancher, you know, are you spraying? What are your practices? Um, where are you sourcing their hay from? Where are you sourcing their corn from? And you would have those questions that you would never, ever, ever be able to get from a label at the grocery store. So there's a lot of benefits to, you know, shopping local, buying local and supporting um, that option. But 
same token, you know, I stand by the beef we raise every single day. I show it on social media. I'm proud of our operation. And I know that my operation isn't much different than a lot of ranches across the nation. So I want people to still feel good going into the grocery store and buying beef that is in the grocery store too. Well, you know, Dr. Saladino always says, if budget is a concern, grab the ground beef from the grocery store and start there. Oh, Yes, that's the other thing you just triggered me. A big difference that I want to make sure I highlight for people so they know. Uh, when you're buying direct-to-consumer, you are getting one cow and one cow only, which um, isn't much of a difference when you think of your whole cuts. So like your steaks in the grocery store, everything's graded on, you know, like select prime choice. Yes. So that's going to be, for the most part, you shouldn't be able to tell the difference between a prime steak you buy at the grocery store and a prime steak. I mean, it's been graded, right? So theoretically, it should be the same. The big difference, though, is grocery store beef is a melded product. So it's going to be a lot of animals combined into one. Uh, whereas for the ground beef. For the ground beef. Yep. For ground beef products. Got whereas it. ground beef that you are buying direct from your rancher is going to be one cow and one cow only. So that is also a really big difference between grocery okay. store and direct consumer beef. Here's my cooking tip of the year. I'm doing ground brisket now. My farmer, my cattle farmer is doing ground brisket. Y'all, it is so good because I'm going to up you one, Lisa, and challenge you to adding, you should add organs to your ground. I have, I do. Oh yeah. Don't tell my family. Okay. (laughs) What stays (laughs) on the podcast happens on the podcast or what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. So how I um, circumvent that because, you know, I, I do have to doctor that up more. So if I get the brown ground beef with the organ meats, um, my one of my Lisa's recipes is um, I cook it down, and um, and if you want onion and garlic and all the things, right? Depending if they bother you or not, because we know that there are anti nutrients in some of these foods. So everybody, that's one thing about diet; it is very subjective and it's very individual, bioindividuality, right? So, but with that, I cook it down with the organ meats. I use cumin and a lot of spices. And then I put it over like, and I've done this before with the Ralston family. I've been up to their facility and we cook for, we did a YouTube segment and I cook it um, over, put it over their rice that I cook in my bone broth because so I'm getting the value of the collagen there. And then I get my local cheese and sour cream. And if you want tomatoes and other things on it, you doctored that thing up and you don't know it has organ meats. If you don't do that, And if you're bothered by the bite, you'll notice there's Mm -hmm. a definite bite to it. Some people, you know, there are one or two people out of a million who like liver without a gun to their The liver king. Besides (laughs) the liver king. Just the liver king. (laughs) Right. Just the liver king. I have a friend in Austin who is not far from there. And I I challenged her last week to get the local uh, liver. And she did. You know, they say, now they say the trick to that is freezing it. And then pulling it out, slicing it, it kind of gives me a little gag right here. So I just do what I can. But Mm -hmm. if you can doctor it with some spices, if you're not bothered by spices, that's a great way to incorporate that for your family. And it's so healthy. We were on a podcast. We are out of time here. You all are amazing. Let's go on the road together. Let's do (laughs) the Lisa, Tara, and Natalie show. I I love love it. it. It's been fun uh-huh. talking with you today. I can't believe it's already been an hour. I know. I know. Y'all are y'all are absolutely amazing. Um, beautiful spirits. Thank you for doing what you do. Hang the hand or uh, hang the banner high uh, that you are female farmers. You are encouraging people. Please stop worrying about farting cows. Get your kids <laughs> the nutrients they need. 
In fact, there are studies. I have a son who's 6'3", who I probably, I, I didn't know how important beef and meat was when he was in the growing stage and he, you know, played high school football. I tell him all the time, had I just given you more meat, they're showing that uh, kids during puberty, especially young men who are given more animal products, how they even grow taller and, you know, and, and my son's very fit and tall and all that. But I do think of, well, you can see it now. You you can see the the guy that uh, Travis Barker, who Khloe Kardashian's married to, he's about this big, you know. <laughs> Oh, here's one more thing. Okay, I know I said we're out of town, but this is something I just recognized. So have y'all seen Smartless, the TV they did? Netflix did something on the three guys that do Smartless, which is Will um, Arnett and Sean Hayes mm-hmm. and J- Jason Bateman. And if you watched it, one of them was getting steak while Jason Bateman was eating. For one thing, he was eating all day, which your digestion needs a break. That's why we promote intermittent fasting. And number two... He was taking Tums all day or Gas X. I'm sorry, Gas X. Why? Because he was eating plants all day. <laughs> it's not farting cows, y'all. It's farting celebrities that we should be worried about. <laughs> LA is one big fart city because they all think they need to eat these vegan diets, which all it does, if you're eating vegetables and your stomach distends, it's not working for you. Mm-hmm. That and doesn't I love happen Jason with, Bateman, darn it. I do too. I do too. But it doesn't happen with beef or cheese. Okay, I'm dropping the mic. We're done. That was a good mic drop. Thanks for having us, Lisa. Thank you. Y'all are great. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.